You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Christopher Media, let's make some noise. Nie wiem, czy Państwo lubicie mamrzotkie. Nie, popatrz, co ty dzieliści mi nie wpadliśmy na ten pomysł. Zawsze mówię więcej jarzyn, witaminy. Proszę. Dziękuję, mam. Po co pan nosi taki kinczo? Bo taki już jest w życiu potrzebny. Zwłaszcza w lesie. Na wodzie jest nieprzydatny, ale w lesie, gdzie się trzeba przedzierać przez gąszcz. Bo pływanie po wodzie to jest... Pływanie po wodzie to jest nic. Dopiero gdy się idzie przed siebie, koniecznie znów. Tak już jest w życiu. Ale pan dziecinny. Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me once again is Ms. Sam Deegan. Hello. Also back in the booth is Mr. Spencer Parsons. Hello. On this episode, we are looking at a pair of films from Roman Polanski. First up, we're discussing the 1962 film Knife in the Water. It's about a couple, Andre and Christina, who run across a young man without a name. When he joins them on a sailing trip, well, things don't work out as well as they should. We will be spoiling this and a whole lot of other Polanski films as we go along, so consider yourself warned. Spencer, when was the first time you saw Knife in the Water, and what did you think? I'm pretty sure I first saw it when I was in grad school uh, some time ago. I liked it, but it wasn't a big favorite Polanski for me. Well, eternally, I'm, I'm a little bit more of a repulsion and, and tenant kind of guy. But rewatching it this time, I liked it better than I remembered. It had been quite a, a while. How about you, Sam? Yeah, you know, I kind of feel the same way. I mean, I saw it probably 15 or so years ago when Netflix first started and they were disc only and they had all this criterion on there. So I would just kind of get things at random. And it was far from the first Polanski film I saw. So I was, I guess, a little confused about why it was so highly rated compared to things like The Tenant, which is my favorite. But it's a good place to start because it's the most accessible in a weird way or most conventional or something. I saw this one. I think I'd seen other Polanskis before this. I think I had seen... Rosemary's Baby. I think I during that episode I said that I had seen that one rather young. This one I saw in college and it was part of this Eastern European film class and the professor showed us Two Men in a Wardrobe and this and I just was captivated. I guess it was just kind of seeing the new wave but seeing it represented by Poland and seeing how Polanski was able to shoot this really taut mystery drama human interest story on this tiny little space on this boat and have these three characters and manage to keep it interesting the whole way through. 
that's one of the reasons why in the second half of the show, we're going to talk about Death and the Maiden, which is another three-person thing. And that's kind of Polanski's shtick. He has that whole triptych quite a few times, I think, like in uh, Cul-de-Sac. And, and I'm trying to remember at least one other. He's got just three people as the primary folks. And I don't think we see anybody else in the entire world. It's almost like a post-apocalyptic world. There's no one else on the road anywhere visible other than the three people that we have here. Death and the Maiden, of course, is is based on a stage play that makes sense, you know, to have only three people. And for most of it, it does until all of a sudden all those extras show up uh, at the end. And it's a little shocking. Well, yeah, it's also strange because the area where that's shot, it's this super famous lake district in Poland that has thousands of interconnected lakes. And so you have to imagine that it's probably a super popular vacation spot and there would at least have to be someone else on the dock or maybe in another lake. And it just, it's watching it now was extra weird. Well, I know they shot it in October, so naturally there's not going to be anybody there. But yeah, story-wise, it seems like there should be other people around. Why is it that on this Sunday, nobody else in the world is visible other than our couple and this guy who is just hitching a ride, who they almost hit with their car? Uh, That whole strange thing of the husband being so controlling that he grabs the wheel from his wife and she just stops the car gets out, moves around, and gets into the passenger side and is just like, okay, you drive. It just felt like such a fuck you to the guy. Yeah, he's awful. Yeah, he's not a very nice guy. He has this whole affluence about him. He seems to be very into the car that he drives, having this perfect wife, having this... <laughs> it kind of reminds me of the talking heads. <laughs> you know, he finds himself behind the wheel of a large automobile, and then he almost <laughs> hits his hitchhiker with it. And then the way that he is just like yelling at the guy, and it's interesting because the guy is almost playing chicken with Andre. It seems like he wants to see who's going to move first. And it's Andre that gives up. And that seems to set the tone for their whole relationship there on out. If you think about sort of conventional post-Hitchcock thrillers, it should be a story where the young guy is a psychopath and he's trying to steal things from them or murder them or and manipulates them into letting him on the boat. But that doesn't seem to be the case at all here. And the opening is so strange in the way that he is almost hit by the car, but then Ajay like forces him into the car. So he, he goes from being angry that he's standing in the middle of the road and angry that he's this disreputable, dirty hitchhiker, but then forces him to get in and gives him like a blanket and a pillow and tells him that he has to take a nap. The opening, I think, goes against narrative expectation in a way that I really love, but that I think is a little bit jarring because it's like once they get to the boat, he sort of prepares to go on his merry way, but is once again forced kind of to come with them. It's just like, why? Just because he's controlling? Yeah, well, and it creates some really interesting thriller expectations that uh, get thwarted because it's such strange kind of irrational behavior 
to bring him along in the car and then get him to come along on the boat. You know, even this time I had forgotten a little bit how the movie worked. And so I kept thinking, Oh, right. So he's got a, he's got a kind of plan with this guy that something is going to get revealed about the plan that these two have together uh, somehow. And uh, because it's, it's the kind of thing that in a more conventional thriller, you go like, why are they doing that? And then, uh, somewhere in the middle of Act Two, it's going to be revealed that they they have a, a a thing going on, and that they don't actually creates another level of of strange mystery between the the three people. Totally, and I also forgot just how much it subverts your expectations over and over again. And one of Polanski's biggest themes, which we definitely see even more in Death and the Maiden is he seems to have this kind of thesis about how people are terrible and he wants to show you why they're terrible or how they're sort of how they become that way and i think you see a kernel of that here because he has this really great way of criticizing or examining masculinity instead of following these sort of standard thriller tropes he shows you how things become so tense not because there's some sort of crazy plot that's being shown to us little by little, but simply because these two men are having a dick measuring contest. Like, that really is the whole thing. That's the only way to make sense of the husband bringing this kid along twice is that it's like he has to dominate this other man for his own uh, kind of sexual thrill with his wife. Yeah, and it's so much more subversive than if it had just been a conventional thriller, I think, because of that. I don't want to sound like Zizak or something, but then you actually have the phallus, the knife-like phallus in this movie. So in that the movie's called Knife in the Water, and this kid brings out this knife, and you're just like, okay, when is this going to come into play? And it's like Chekhov's knife, and that he plays another trick on us by literally putting the knife into the water. We've got the title right there rather than it being like a symbolic thing, like the knife in the water and you know the sailboat is the knife or this kid's going to stab somebody that it just ends that thread that way that with the knife falling into the water, it's like, Oh, okay. But yeah, I, I'm sitting here the whole time going like, okay, you pick up a hitchhiker, you're going to get him cutting his hand with the knife and leaving a mark on your car and then they're going to run into a family of cannibals that sees the mark or something like texas chainsaw or you're going to have a novel which surprisingly came out in 1963 which was made into a movie in i think 89 um dead calm you know which is another three people on a boat and one of them is a psychopath movie it's like all right yeah so i'm expecting that whereas this is more of this character study. And as you're saying, Sam, it's just more of an examination of toxic masculinity. The thing that I thought about the most rewatching it this time is how unusual it is to have a Polanski film in Polish, which obviously one of the huge themes of his work is isolation, alienation, people being outsiders. And I always kind of assumed that a lot of that came from the fact that he's forced to direct in other languages, though obviously for the majority of his life, he's been fluent in English and French as, as well as Polish. But watching this, it really made me think about the fact that it, it has nothing to do with language at all. 
you feel it so strongly in this film in his native language, not only because like we said, there are no people anywhere, but because the character of the hitchhiker is such an outsider to this bourgeois middle-class couple. Like he's as far from their way of life as possible to the point where it's almost like a fish out of water type scenario for the first, you know, pardon the pun for the first half of the film where they're constantly having to explain to him how to do things that are normal to them. Andre is just every chance he has to humiliate the kid, he's going to do it even to the point of handing him that really extra hot pot of soup and the kid just standing there holding it while his hands are burning. You know, to go to this, uh, to, to your point, Sam, about uh, Polanski seeing himself as an outsider, I, I, I think it's worth mentioning as well that he dubbed the voice of the kid. That's Polanski's voice throughout the movie because he didn't like the voice of the actor. That was something that I only found out recently, and it bugged me so much because it sounds like Polanski. Like, if you've heard him speak a lot or speak in Polish... He has this very kind of like lazy, relaxed way of speaking that is like if you listen to their two accents, his accent is or at least his his cadence is totally different than than Andre and who does this like dramatic rolling of his R's and all of this nonsense. But I think that that might be because the actor was actually Lithuanian. And so I'm guessing maybe his accent just wasn't Polish enough. I think it was partially that, but also probably also partially just a control thing. And there was talk of Polanski playing the hitchhiker. There was also talk of Skolomowski playing the hitchhiker. And then they end up with this other guy. And I don't think either one of them was necessarily that happy with him. And Polanski was like, okay, yeah, I'll just redub him. And then he ends up getting another woman to redub Christina's voice. Are you suggesting that Polanski is a control freak? I am very much saying that Polanski is a control freak. That's shocking. The control freak thing, not not to just veer all over the place, but um, in terms of our our tight location, uh, the control freak thing ends up playing out in some very interesting ways, uh, given the difficulty of shooting in and around a boat. You know, they had to shoot the boat stuff handheld, you know, versus the usual dolly and crane work that Polanski is really into. He nevertheless manages to keep keep it all as as controlled uh, as as normal or feels as controlled as a normal Polanski film. But just with um, a little bit of a little bit of extra chaotic motion to the whole thing that I that I really like about it, because it um, I love Polanski's style. But in some of his films, and I'll mention this about Death of the Maiden, it gets a little too controlled and uh, precise and affected for me. You know, maybe it's because it's his first feature, but I think also to some degree the the particularities of the location kept him from being quite as much of a control freak as normal. And, and yet it seems like he hits it just right. There's definitely something about the first couple of features where there's this sense of barely controlled chaos, not only to, and narratively, I don't mean like in terms of the actual visual style, but in terms of this film, repulsion, cul-de-sac, there's this sense that anything could happen. Like there's just this really kind of ominous sense of unpredictability 
that in a way I think he loses in the later films like The Ninth Gate and Death and the Maiden where it just it's like, it's almost like he has it down to a science too much. I have to say the framing in this movie so many of these shots are just incredible. I love even just the simple shots of Christina when she's laying out and you've got the trees in the background almost seem to be almost growing out of her. Just so many of those shots are beautiful. And I have to ask you guys, I'm not crazy when I see the hitchhiker laying on his back using having his finger up having that halo of rope around him having his arms out at one point and his legs crossed in this total jesus christ pose and then later on he's literally walking on the water it's like what are you trying to tell me roman <laughs> yeah it's uh it's interesting i uh, by by purest chance i watched uh pasolini's teorema again earlier this week and uh i kept i kept getting those uh weird uh variations on a theme kind of vibe where these were two movies that kind of went together in in really interesting ways yeah that is quite a double feature i mean i i feel like they take a common theme but the end result is wildly different. I mean, I, I mean, also think Polanski is so much more nihilistic than Pasolini. Well, uh, you know, for instance, in the, the 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 upshot of Knife in the Water is the couple sort of has their pre-existing ugly desires satisfied, you know, by the encounter with uh, with with this unnamed boy. Whereas the characters in Teorema are in very different ways, opened up toward, uh, you know, new, new possibilities, you know, through their, um, their encounter. But would you see Terrence Stamp and Teorema being Satan or God? It feels like he's one or the other, whereas the hitchhiker, it feels very much like he's being coded as Jesus. In Teorema, I've always seen that character as being this sort of socialist angelic force of liberation because he's pretty much breaking them free from the chains of capitalism and consumerist society and all those things that Pasolini thought were so destructive and detrimental to humanity. Whereas here, he's, I don't know if I actually see him as being sort of a Christ figure or I see him as being more of a scapegoat than as a a spiritual liberator in any way. I would I would tend to agree with that. He's maybe more sacrificial here, yeah. even though he doesn't he doesn't end up dying. He's more sacrificial, whereas Terrence Stamp and Teorema is more of the risen Christ. If that, if that makes sense. <laughs> tip your bartenders. I suppose, too, Polanski is telling us, basically, there needs to be multiple perspectives on things by giving us that whole thing that we just saw in another episode where we talked about um, uh, Tarsum's The Fall, that whole thing of him holding his finger up and looking at his finger with either eye and seeing how it shifts perspective. So we really need to always keep our mind open to how to look at this thing from multiple angles, I suppose. Maybe also some of it is he's saying that this sort of outsider figure in particular has to be the sort of sacrificial victim to, as you were saying, to sort of let these people exercise their hidden desires. 
I think that that's right. And there's also something interesting, too, to consider in the way that this is a depiction of a bourgeoisie. They have the boat. They have the expensive car. I mean, in fact, they originally shot with a more expensive car, but the rumor got out that they were, you know, spending profligately in, in Poland. And so the interior of the car is one make a car and the exterior is another because they had to sh- reshoot all those exterior scenes. But that said, what, what's interesting to me here is that we have a bourgeoisie in a country that at the time is uneasy about depicting a bourgeoisie and it doesn't fit socialist realism. And initially, the, 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 the film wasn't going to be funded because of, you know, that exact thing. Like, not only that it was genre, but that it was depicting a kind of people that did, did, that did not fit the sort of social realism uh, strictures of, uh, you know, what Polish cinema funders wanted at the time. But it's, it's interesting because Polanski is capturing a thing that really existed in Poland, but is, is a little bit of a, a weird, dirty secret. And yet, what, what's funny about this and what's funny in, in regard to, you know, censorship a, around this idea is that he's certainly not making out this bourgeoisie to be particularly, you know, great or nice. Uh, he's simply depicting that they, they exist within this society where supposedly, supposedly they don't and they, 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 they happen to be, you know, quite vicious in their own way all the way through the film and especially, you know, revealed by the kind of final standoff between husband and wife being truthful with one another in order to be mean and also play a kind of uh, sexual game with one another that seems seems to be suggested is a part of their marriage. So I, I find that very interesting as well. Again, in relation, sorry to take this into the Pasolini territory, but in relation to Teorema, where it's a country that is, uh, you know, more part of the capitalist West at the time, uh, and is critiquing, you know, this industrialist from another, uh, from a, from a kind of angle that seems, um, you know, more obvious as like a, a sort of socialist critique of, of class systems. Even if you just compare the two wife characters in both of those films, Christina is such an unusual character because at first she seems like this sort of typical, quiet, passive trophy wife. I mean, that's definitely the sense you get in that wonderful car scene. The one moment there that really stands out to me, it's not even just him grabbing the steering wheel. It's when they switch sides and they get back in the car he slams up against her trying to get it's so claustrophobic. And it's like he's trying to take up more space. But it becomes pretty clear by halfway through the film that she's not quiet because she's meek. She's quiet because she's calculating. You get the sense that she's just as much in control as he wants to be. And I don't think you could really have an Italian wife in any film act like that. And you certainly probably wouldn't have that in a Hollywood film from around the same time where she never comes across as a victim. She comes across exactly to your point as somebody who's playing a very specific and very calculating game. She looks so different between when we see her the first time with the glasses and the hair up, and then she changes throughout the film. And by the time she's on the boat and much later, especially after her hair is wet, she just looks like this sensual goddess. And it's like, whoa, where did this person come from? What she looked like the first time, she was so uptight and looked like, you know, maybe uh, Andres' secretary that he was running off for the weekend with. 
Yeah, that transformation is incredible. Obviously, there are really big issues with Polanski and his treatment of women in films and treatment of women in real life. But there's a way in which, even though this particular film doesn't give as much of a large role and agency to its main female character, it still has this greater sense of sympathy with her than you might expect, just given how she really is a full player and not a victim, even if her part is the dick measuring cut. Because of his personal history, I feel like he gets a bad rap or more of a bad rap than he deserves in terms of his presentation of female characters. I totally agree, by the way. I am 100% with you here. It makes me so angry. It's like, yes, he did something horrible. You can think he's a horrible person. But if you as a film critic just automatically, and I'm not saying this you personally, this is a plural you, it it just seems like a very lazy way for people to say, okay, he did something horrible. And people do this with Woody Allen, too, that all of his female characters are presented really misogynistically, and they're all one dimensional, blah, blah, blah. But I don't think that's the case at all. And if anything, and this is going to sound bad, but just bear with me for a second. One of the most interesting things I think that he does is he's not afraid to show that women can also be terrible, or at least can be manipulative, calculating, that they can have all of the same negative traits that the male characters can. And I think something about a lot of Hollywood films is there isn't that same range of complexity, especially with more like classic Hollywood or even films being made around the same time as Knife in the Water. And so, and I know I said this earlier, I feel like his thesis is always to show you how people are terrible and how the world can be an awful place. But with her, I just love that he makes it clear that she's definitely in control of her own destiny and is not some vapid trophy wife who just sort of goes along with this asshole because he buys her nice things. There's something more to it than that. And she's in much more control than we first ever guess. I'm very curious about the name of the boat, why the name of the boat is her name, but it's in English. It's the English spelling rather than the Polish spelling. And I'm wondering if that's some sort of America envy or something. Is that just like, hey, we want to be even more bourgeois by naming our things this English way? Yeah, that's my assumption is it's sort of the way that, you know, bourgeois Americans will write things or name things in French because it makes them feel more elite or something. I assume that that's what it is. I guess it gives you a little bit more duplicity of the character as well, that she has two names. Possibly that's one way to read into this. The scene that I don't know if it 100% works or not, the scene of them below deck when she is changing and there's a mosquito in the room and the hitchhiker is looking at the mosquito and he turns and he looks at her, even though she said, don't look at me, but he's turning, looking at the mosquito and Andre catches him and he realizes, I think what's going on and then turns his head back. Speaking of um, controlling, by the way, apparently that was also uh, Polanski doing the sound of the mosquito. Of course it was. That is the most Polanski thing I've ever heard in my entire life. 
Back to that scene, I think one of the interesting dynamics of it, and it comes through in the way that it's played and the composition, is that like when she says don't look it's it's for you know the usual reasons that we expect but it's also within this tight space drawing attention to herself and playing a kind of power game with the two men like she's definitely seizing that particular moment and the way the the, the way that it's framed with the two men moving back and forth from either side of the frame and she's kind of more dead center as she's changing. It's really interesting because visually it allows her to take control and have the stability within the scene while the two dudes are, uh, are more unstable in their relationship. Yeah, totally agreed. It feels like such a, just part of the power game, like saying don't look is basically like saying, I dare you to look here. I am by the way, I'm, doing one of the first topless scenes in Polish cinema history, but here I am. Yeah, and their game of pickup sticks, which just, again, it just goes to all this power. And of course, Andre just keeps ripping on people for not playing the game correctly and just how dumb the hitchhiker is because there are plenty of places that he could have picked up the sticks when they weren't trapped under anything else. And Andre, the, the man's performance that plays Andre, he is so good in this, and he, he's delightful to dislike. In the text, it gives him this wonderful line about the game that it isn't just a game, it's an organism, which feels <laughs> a little bit like a description of the three of them on the boat, you know, for, for most of the movie, that they become this this kind of organism together. That also reminds me of a lot of his dialogue where He'll go from having a casual, normal conversation, and then he'll slip into talking about them like they're some sort of naval military unit, and everything has to go according to how, you know, the rules and regulations are. And there's a lot about the dialogue here that is great, but is very unpolansky. And I think it's because Skolomovsky was responsible, and I just sort of wish that they had done more of that together it's more vibrant or something. Yeah, I completely agree. I wish those two would have had more of a partnership. I think they could have done some really wonderful things together. I mean, not to say that they didn't go on to both do terrific things, but the two of them together, I think would have been just such a powerhouse. But you also have to wonder if it would have been sort of a two controlling giant ego directors, sort of how long would they have survived that? Yeah, I went back and I rewatched it today and I didn't realize because there's there's one moment that really sticks out for me which is when the hitchhiker starts whistling and Andre like clamps down on him immediately it's just like no whistling on the boat and then when I rewatched it today I was like, "Oh, motherfucker, he whistles way before the hitchhiker does." <laughs> he sure does. I was thinking about it uh, watching it this time around to your point earlier about how both Polanski and uh, Skolomowski were maybe going to act as the lead. And it's just, I think, so telling of their personalities that, you know, not a lot of directors act. Or if they do, they make these sort of like little, they have these little like cameo appearances. But both Skolomowski and Polanski are such accomplished actors. It is sort of a wonder that one of them didn't star in this and maybe again it's because of the whole control thing to be a fly on that ship to be that mosquito 
It's crazy to look at Skolomowski's filmography on IMDb, and one of the first things that comes up is one of the Avengers movies. And I'm like, oh yeah, he was a doctor in one of the Avengers films. Okay, don't you know? Don't put Deep End or uh, any of these other films that he directed, but put the Avengers on there as one of the best known things that he's known for. <laughs> We keep thinking that this is going to turn into a thriller. It's going to turn into a murder mystery. There's going to be this whole thing. And then when he punches on, uh, when Andre punches the hitchhiker and he goes into the water and the hitchhiker said, I don't know how to swim, it becomes this like, Oh man, what's going to happen here? And Andre goes for a lot of the rest of the movie thinking that he accidentally killed this guy. But it never ends up being that way. It isn't a thriller. Like you expect, like he's going to do like a Max Cady and come out of the water and, and try to murder the family or something. But it never goes that way. Instead, we have this great seduction scene. Also, I'm so thankful that Christina doesn't have to give uh, the hitchhiker this whole, like, he doesn't treat me well, and I need uh, the Thank comfort God. of another man and all this kind of stuff that we would expect in any other film. This sort of goes back to what I was saying earlier about how grateful I am that Christina has written the way she is, because if this was a Hollywood movie, a to what you just said, it definitely would have become a conventional thriller. And B, if there was a sex scene between them, there would have been some sort of long winded explanation for why. And I love probably my favorite part is the fact that at the end, he doesn't believe her that the hitchhiker has survived and is saying, okay, well, we're going to go to the police station. And the only thing that really changes his mind is she's like, yeah, and I cheated on you with him. Totally casual, very calm. Like, yeah, we just had sex. Yeah, she could have admitted that, but she chooses to let him know. But she also doesn't do it in a melodramatic way. Like, I cheated on you, and it was so much better, and blah, blah, blah. Like, you, you could have gone, I think, any number of directions with that scene to make it, you know, maybe that's the end of their marriage. or But no, he just keeps it so subdued. It's perfect. Yeah, she just gets what she wants. And there's, there's neither the, like, you know, as you mentioned, the kind of wronged woman... Uh, explanation or frame on it, but nor is there the femme fatale either, because that's that's the other toggle, especially within thriller language, is that like, oh, she's the one who's been planning it all along, and you know, she's she's um, you know the real source of evil in the story, um, and it just it it refuses to do that. She's an ordinary person who wants what she wants, and she happens to get it in this case. And that's I think what's so great about all three of them, or at least about the couple, is that they're just so ordinary. And he shows you that ordinary people can be controlling without being full-on abusive. It definitely, if this had been a more conventional Hollywood thriller, they probably would have painted the husband not as being controlling and kind of annoying in an ordinary way, but he would have been full-on abusive or an alcoholic or something that would justify her behavior. But nope, instead, Polanski does not do that. Thank goodness. Yes, thank God. And I love that they are caught in this whole thing of being paralyzed at the end, that the car never turns, that we end up seeing them at this crossroads, this literal crossroads. Do they go right and forget about it? Do they go left and go to the police? Which way are they going to go? And that we end on that question mark is so nice that we don't get that resolution. 
that feels the most new wavy about the film. And it also feels like the sort of decision making, the sort of narrative decision making that an older Polanski would not have made. So you're saying he would have had the car start to turn one way or the other? Yeah, I think so. Or there would have been earlier, you know, to like remain ambiguous about it, but not not have that pointed sort of ambiguity because it holds on the car sitting there for a pretty long time. And one of the things that that did for me was that then it, it got me imagining what is still going on between them that I can't that I'm not being given access to right now beyond just the ambiguity of which way would they go. Yeah, because we are so far away from the car. We've been in the car with them. We've been outside the car directly from them in the opening credits. But now we are, what, uh, 100 meters back or something looking at this car at the crossroads and that we are forced out of the story. It's kind of our exit from the theater and just seeing them up there, these two talking possibly figures. We don't even know if they're having a conversation or if they're just sitting there in paralysis. One of my favorite moments at the end that I <laughs> that I love so much is there's that great conversation when they first park, where the hitchhiker says to him, you know, what about the windshield wipers? And all haughty and overly confident, he says, oh, the type of people who come around here would never, would never steal my windshield wipers. And <laughs> the first thing when they get back to the car, he sort of like defeated and kind of annoyed admits the windshield wipers have been stolen. I think that's where it should have ended. That's another thing about Polanski. He has this like really amazing particular sense of humor. He's very drawn to like these kind of banal things as hilarious. In so many of his movies, there are these, these, these like strange grace notes uh, like the windshield wipers that almost seem at odds with everything else going on, but in a perfect way. Yeah, I his sense of humor is definitely an acquired taste, but I just think it's wonderful. I mean, it often has a lot to do with objects, and I, I'm wondering if I. I mean, I think the two men in a wardrobe and this both have a sort of strange, very kind of I guess new wave use of objects that's unexpected and i think the windshield wiper humor is just is just is perfect i mean i know a lot of people don't like his comedy but i think that his comedy chops are fantastic i i haven't seen the fearless vampire killers in way too long i need to go back to it but i remember there being some good laughs call the sack has this great absurdist humor <laughs> <So funny. laughs> there are just great little like absurd moments through so many of his films though we're not going to have too many laughs in death and the maiden no <laughs> I find the dividing line to be Bitter Moon. People who find Polanski really funny like Bitter Moon, as I do. And yes. people that are not as keyed into the humor don't get it and just think it's bad. I would totally agree with that. Yeah, Bitter Moon is pretty fucking hilarious. I It's so over the top and just so nuts. It is, wow. I also, and I feel like this is going to be a very unpopular thing to say, but it seems like a lot of people let's let's call them not fans of bitter moon a lot a lot of those people seem to think that chinatown is one of his best films but i th i think that chinatown while it is perfectly fine has these moments where he uses over the top melodrama as humor 
but you have to like know that that he's doing that to find it funny like that my daughter my sister part is so over the top that like that must be meant to be comedy on some level he sometimes uses definitely absurdism like you mentioned but sometimes he uses film conventions in a weird way to be funny that I think he does a lot in something like Bitter Moon and in some of his later films like Carnage. And I think it's just unsettling or off-putting for people who aren't used to it. Carnage just did not hit with me at all. And I kept thinking that I should be laughing, but I just didn't think it was as funny as it needed to be. Sure. And I, I do think some of those later films, they almost become more theatrical than cinematic in a way that can be difficult for people. Yeah, which we talked about on the Venus and Furs episode with his Venus and Furs. Carnage is is interesting for me because I really sort of hate that script, but I do enjoy that movie because I like what he does with the steady cam in that apartment set and that there's this set that's built. I mean, this is such a dorky thing to talk about, but <laughs> it, it relates to a bunch of his other movies and he's like you know, these tight apartment films that, that he makes, it actually is the right size and scale for a rich New York apartment in a way that I feel like I never, ever see. And the way that the camera follows people around in it, if I turn off what I consider to be the pretty terrible dialogue in Carnage, the movie is very witty and exciting to watch as, as like a, you know, a visual spectacle of these four people, you know, trapped in a New York apartment. Yeah, I mean, I think if you're going to watch any director's work during this coronavirus quarantine and you want to see people trapped in spaces by themselves, Polanski is is the best one to start with. Maybe just one one more note on that, because Death and the Maiden, we're going to end up with three people in one, uh, you know, remote house, which also kind of fits fits the bill, even with some of the opening up that goes on in, in that film. But uh, I'll say that, that like, when I saw the, the pianist, all of a sudden, there was a lot of stuff in Polanski that made sense as autobiography. As I was watching this movie, the, the sort of Polanski's way of, of viewing the world from this hold up position during wartime uh, and hiding and not not wanting to be found and stuck in this kind of series of tight spaces, you know, for Adrian Brody, all of a sudden I go, oh, repulsion means something very, very different than what I originally thought. I spend a lot of time writing about World War II films and films made in the aftermath that refer back to the war. And this is maybe one of the reasons that I get so angry about people being reductive about Polanski's films is the most important way to think about him as a filmmaker is to consider that all of his films come from a place of surviving extreme trauma. And once you consider that, they all have this sort of weird link, regardless of what they're about. And definitely Death and the Maiden is one of the most autobiographical not even just the pianist, but also something that I've been thinking about recently, just like one last thing about Knife in the Water is after the war, a sort of slightly older teenage Polanski was finally reunited with his father after many years being apart and his father's new wife, who he hated. And I sometimes wonder if there's a little kind of 
autobiographical touch in the threesome here, where you have this sort of really controlling older man and this quiet, maybe a little bit unlikable wife and this sort of outsider kid who they're making fun of and sort of tearing apart. And I I don't know, I just wonder if there's any autobiographical connection there. You might be overthinking it. Because Sam, you know that this show is all about overthinking things. I love overthinking everything. (laughs) All right, guys, let's go ahead and take a break. And we'll be right back after these brief messages. This is an American Red Cross blood donation alert. We are currently facing a severe blood shortage during this coronavirus outbreak. Healthy blood and platelet donors are asked to make an appointment to give now. Donating blood is safe and can help save lives. Cancer patients, accident victims, and so many others continue to need life-saving transfusions. So please schedule your appointment now by visiting redcrossblood.org or calling 1-800-RED-CROSS. You can make a difference. I know you know who I'm talking about. It's that guy. Yeah, yeah, with the eyebrows, right? He's, he's in a yeah, million the bushy movies. eyebrows. Sometimes they're bushy, but he also sometimes have a mustache. Yeah, with, that, but but he shaved. Well, he, no, he did. You know who I'm talking about. You see, you've seen it, him in a million movies. We just saw him in that one thing. Yeah, he looks like a pug. Listen to me, Chris Gore, and Anthony Ray Bench on the Film Threat Podcast. You got questions? Sometimes we have the answers. Hi there, Faithful Projection Booth listener, Chris Stashew here. If you're looking for even more deep-dive film discussion, both old and new, on and off the cinematic beaten path, check out the Culture Cast. Every episode, I'm joined by a different guest as we traverse the cinema landscape, talking about not only our monthly theme, but also some of the year's biggest films. I'm even joined by the host of the Projection Booth, the one and only Mike White. So if you want to listen to even more conversations on film, head on over to CultureCast.com or find it on all podcasts Podcatchers, both Android and iOS. I'm Chris Cooling from Forgotten TV, and you're listening to The Projection Booth, the ultimate movie podcast. So I'm really sorry for all the trouble I put you it's to. No problem. Thanks again and goodbye. Who is that? It's the guy who stopped to help me. Yeah, flat in this. Can you believe it? I forgot to take it out. I drove all the way home before it hit me. Of course, I'm so stupid. <laughs> this time you have to have a drink. You know what Nietzsche said? No. We can never entirely possess the female soul. What is this? It's him. Who? The doctor who played Death and the Maiden. If you thought that you recognized him, thought? You were blindfolded. The voice. His laugh. <laughs> I don't know you. I've never seen you before in my life. I don't know what it is you think I've done. This is kidnapping. This is assault. We're going to go to jail for 20 years. What are you going to do with him? I want him to confess. How can I confess to something I haven't done? You might kill him. We push him off the cliff onto the red car. They're still going to know who's murdered. But what am I talking about? I'm telling you, it's him. He talked about science and philosophy. He liked to quote Nietzsche. Nietzsche? She's mad. She needs therapy. You are her therapy. I'm not crazy! Sigourney Weaver. Ben Kingsley. Stuart Wilson. Tell me, what can I say? What do you want me to say? If I'm guilty, you'll kill me. If I'm innocent, you'll kill me. I just want the truth. Death and the Maiden. 
All right, we are back, and we are shifting gears to talk about another Roman Polanski film, Death and the Maiden. Polanski has managed to make a few films with three characters, and this one really struck me the most while watching it as a good companion piece for Knife in the Water. Based on the play by Ariel Dorfman, this 1994 film stars Sigourney Weaver as Paulina Escobar. Because when you see Sigourney Weaver, you immediately think, doesn't she look like her last name would be Escobar? She and her husband live in an unnamed South American country, probably Chile, when her husband gives a ride to a charming stranger, Dr. Roberto Miranda, who's played by Ben Kingsley. She thinks that he was the man who tortured and raped her. So this one I did see at the theater, and I really enjoyed it um, as much as you can enjoy this film. And yeah, while I was watching it, I was just like, oh, okay, yeah, this feels very familiar. And then it dawned on me. Three characters stuck in a location, though there's a little bit more to the outside world than just what we had in Knife in the Water. I mean, (laughs) Knife in the Water takes place in the great outdoors, but they're stuck on this boat. They're stuck in the house a little bit, but we have a little bit more of the outside. So I'm curious, did you guys, how did you first uh, come across Death and the Maiden? I want to say I watched it probably sometime in grad school, maybe like my mid-twenties, I want to say, and I wasn't really sure what to expect. I'm still not sure how I feel about it, to be totally honest. Yeah, I have kind of a funny story about this one. Uh, I was uh, back uh, home from college for a summer. This movie had just hit VHS, and I very much wanted to see it immediately. And it was based on my, my parents, uh, uh, you know, were actors. So it was a play that they were aware of and they had read. And, uh, you know, my dad is a big Chinatown fan. So just suggesting, oh, great, we're going to go out and rent Death and the Maiden. And um, oh, no. It was, <laughs> and my grandmother was also there. No. And not at all. So it was like my mom and dad were both reasonably prepared for for the movie because they knew the play. I was reasonably prepared because I had read about it, but it was still really uncomfortable at that age to watch this with them. But then my grandmother was there and it, it like the room turned to ice about five minutes in and nobody wanted to stop the movie, but she was enraged by the end. This was art that shouldn't exist. I don't know. The, uh, watching it again, uh, you know, for this put me a little bit back in that, uh, you know, strange anti-nostalgic place uh, where I originally watched it. And I had a lot of very similar and kind of conflicted feelings. You know, at the time I was ready to like throw down for, for Polanski. This time I really admired the film, but there was also, a, I guess, having gotten older that I, I was a little bit more on my grandmother's side going, what is the nature of this really as art having this like thriller plot? for this kind of foul, uh, you know, uh, information uh, that's that's being spilled throughout it. And, and, you know, was written as a play with very much that purpose of educating an audience about things that had gone on. I admired it. And I guess I would say that I, I like this movie, but it did. It gave it gave me an extra kind of hard time that I'm interested to talk about now. <laughs> with this film in particular, and also with Tess, There are sort of two issues. Issue number one is like, how do we feel about a rapist making a film about a rape survivor and confronting her rapist? Issue number two is what I brought up not too long ago, which is the most important way 
to think about Polanski is as a trauma survivor himself. He's somebody who often makes films about rape and other kinds of violation in a way that they're not exploitation films. They're not in any way eroticizing rape. So it's, it's to me, I think it's a really fascinating paradox, for lack of a better word. And I'm sure many people agree with your grandmother that this is horrible and it shouldn't be made. But at the same time, something that goes hand in hand with things like like state terror and genocide is this issue of mass rape and rape as torture that people are really uncomfortable talking about and no one makes films about it. If you think about instances of reported rape and the Holocaust, there are all kinds of narratives around the mass rapes that occurred in Italy by Algerian soldiers but you don't hear about Jewish women being raped by German soldiers, but it was something that happened on a pretty wide scale. So I feel like it's so complicated because, yes, this information should be out there, but is he the right person to do it, and is this the right format? Well, and another thing that complicates it is the question, at least for 90% of this movie, the question as to whether Sigourney Weaver is sane. Was this actually her rapist, or did she mistake this guy for somebody else? Can we rely on this woman's narrative that this is the man that raped her? So calling those things into question is also really kind of a hot subject. You know, that whole not believing women thing. I mean, I know that never happens here in the United States, but apparently it happens other places. Yes, we drank beer. I liked beer. Still like beer. Yeah, we drank beer. Sometimes probably had too many beers and sometimes other people had too many beers that is the most important positive quality of the film so often when people make films about with a, with a rape survivor as a protagonist it's either some sort of bullshit thriller and granted i enjoy some of these bullshit thrillers but it's usually some sort of bullshit thriller about this woman who's trying to run away from a psychopath who's attacked her and she's very clearly painted to be this victim who's just struggling to survive. Usually some sort of male character comes in to help her out. Or they're exploitation films, rape revenge films, where it's some sort of situation where she becomes this ultra-violent revenge, basically, is, is her only concern. And both of those feel totally false. And I, I like both of those subgenres as somebody who likes exploitation films and as a film critic. But here, it made me grateful, I guess, that such a big issue is that she's so determined that she's right. And her rapist is attempting to make her seem crazy. And her husband doesn't believe her. That is, I guess, maybe the most useful part of the film. I've read that the play differs from the screenplay. And I want to say, and please correct me if I'm wrong, if you guys know, but I want to say that the play 
seems to hinge more on the confession that he gives the first confession and that his confession has details in it that the husband didn't give that then kind of prove that he actually was there. So things like, you know, how they tied them up, how they did this, how they did that. And the confession at the end, when he's over at the precipice, that that doesn't exist in the play. And that really drives it home for us as viewers of the movie. Yes, of course he was there. He did this. He is a horrible person, but the play seems to actually have more of a question mark ending. And again, I've never seen the play and this is just what I've read. That's a really, and I'm sure it's a scene that upsets people, but I think it's such a powerful scene because most of the time when we have, whether it's, in literary fiction or in films, when they present a character who's a rapist, nobody ever bothers to ask why he's a rapist or how the rape happened. And instead, it's just this very sort of black and white, he is a bad guy. It's like the way Nazis are usually presented. It's just, here's a person who's terrible. End of story. There's nothing more complicated. But In real life, I feel like it's often incredibly complicated, and you don't just sort of magically become this evil rapist. There's usually a path there. And the film, I think, is pretty flawed, but I think it's at least interesting that Polanski attempts to tell us why, or he at least gives the character a chance to explain, this is how I got like this, and this is this is how you have a situation where people are encouraged to dehumanize other people and to view them as objects. And to me, this is just a film about the Holocaust. I think one of the things about that particular final monologue is Kingsley's performance puts across an incredible transformation in the course of telling the story that I I think is actually very important to the point of it. He begins kind of still playing the man. He he is, he's playing the part of the man who you would not believe would rape somebody as he starts to tell it. There's a little bit to his performance where it could, it almost feels like he's being, he's playing it as if he's being forced into a false confession. And once he gets going and he's describing it more. It becomes really clear and the monster comes out. And so we're kind of witnessing the transformation over the course of the monologue as he's describing it. I really admire his performance and I really love the patience and tenacity at that point in the movie of not going to anybody's reaction shots, uh, but just hanging on Kingsley's face in this close-up for the whole thing. And then there are a couple of quick reactions after that, but then we mostly go to wide shot for the other two characters and see their bodies react to what we've just seen and heard in this very intense close-up. I like how we just jumped right to the end when we're talking about this movie. (laughs) I think I'm guilty of it. It's like usually I try to walk people through a movie a little bit more, but we just went right to the end because there's just so much to unpack. And I mean, this is the thriller. You know, we were talking about how Knife in the Water is kind of like an anti-thriller. Every time you think it's going to go one way, it goes the opposite way. This one goes exactly the way that you think it's going to go so much of the time. And there's not a lot of surprises to it. And it becomes this, 
you know, I can't say that this is a story that I see all the time, but we do see rape films and we see rape revenge films and we see all these, it has these tropes that we've seen in other places. It's an interesting package for it, but it is so interesting in the last 10 minutes of the film that the rest of it is like, okay, yeah, it's just, it's taking us to this point and putting us in this destination as opposed to, oh, the, the, the ride is half the fun. Not necessarily. Like Knife in the Water, there are ways in which it subverts your expectations. Like when we see her push the car over the cliff, it seems super obvious from that point on that she has had this plan all along and she's going to wind up murdering him. Which, of course, when you get to the actual last scene, you're like, what the fuck? <laughs> but in a in a positive way, because he, he being Polanski, I, I don't think he ever takes the easy way out in terms of his narratives. He always does something that surprises you, often something that frustrates you. And when you get to like characters and you want them to have some sort of happy ending, it's like in the tenant, like, nope, Trokovsky's just going to keep throwing himself out of that window. There's this weird sense the whole time of, we just want to know, is she crazy? And once you start to think, okay, maybe she's not crazy, then you just want to know, is the husband going to believe her? How's this going to play out? How is she going to get her revenge? And so I, I do think it's, similar to knife in the water in a lot of ways there's some complications to the the ending that i i still have uneasiness with that there's you know for me there is a level of kind of like knife in the water the final moment between all three of them comes down to on some level the conflict between these two men obviously very different from knife knife in the water given uh, consent issues but there's something that makes me uneasy about the drama of the husband choosing whether or not to uh, to kill this man and stuff i have problems with that but that said the very final like real the, the, it's not the final shot because the final shot of the movie is of course the the quartet playing on the stage but the real final shot that um that captures uh the the faces of these people seeing one another in this you know highly bourgeois environment plus kingsley's speech these are the things that make it possible for me to say that i like this film with the asterisk of a lot of other problems there's something about that uh resolutions you know for me seeing the transformation but then also seeing the way that everybody normalizes with that, that, that sort of tense final shot of normalization among the three of them, uh, tying them together in this concert really does, does make my uneasiness with the thriller machinery not exactly go away, but it, it, it resolves to a place where I, 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 I feel like morally Polanski is doing something that I, I, I don't completely want to throw away. That's the reality of life after genocide is not every person who committed war crimes or who committed rape or torture, not all of those people have been executed or put in prison or even publicly accused. A lot of the time they just go back to living in your community and you have to sort of normalize that, as you said. Some of it is also 
The frustrating parts, Polanski is often not kind to husbands in his films, and he makes them, I mean, I think this is definitely the case in Knife in the Water, it's definitely the case in Cul-de-Sac, he makes husbands kind of inept in a frustrating way where you just want to toss them out a window. And Escobar here, there are all of those scenes where he could act but refuses to and is just sort of paralyzed. And the way that he feels so castrated, it's it's frustrating to watch. There's a reason why we haven't even said the actor's name and that you actually even gave him the name Escobar because he's almost an identity. He's this representation of a hope for the new government that they want to put these war criminals on trial, but they also want to overturn the sentences for so many of them. So he is already kind of complicit in this new government's plan of we're going to root out the war criminals, but we're also going to give most of them a slap on the wrist. The really bad ones, yeah, we'll maybe do something about that, but we want to have this new era of good feelings. So we want to just say, okay, what you did wasn't good, but go about your merry way. And as to your point, go back into the community and just fade in and do Don't the do rest of your life. Yeah, exactly. You know, we understand times of war, there were pressures, but go right ahead. So yeah, he is, he's this wimp, but it's interesting though. You talked about that last scene of them back at the concert and I love the way that that is shot, where we've got them, you know, it's bookends. There's bookends of Sigourney Weaver and the husband at this concert, and they start to play Death and the Maiden, and you see her visibly shaken. She looks like she's on the edge of tears. And that's how we begin the movie, and then we end with the same kind of thing, another concert, and they're playing Death and the Maiden, and then she looks up, and I love the camera follows her gaze up to Ben Kingsley and his family, and him staring down at her, and then he kind of goes back and becomes this model father again. And then the camera comes down, and it's not Weaver looking at him anymore, but it's the husband. I love the way that they kind of shift this perspective, even though it's just one camera move, or two camera moves, really. But it's nice that it wasn't necessarily her point of view, that it shifts from her to him. There's some really great camera work here that allows you to sort of effortlessly move from different people's perspectives, and... I think a lot of the sort of middle act is concerned with different people's versions of the truth. And now that we're talking about it, I feel like maybe all this stuff with the husband is not a narrative mistake, but is something that Polanski is intentionally doing to show sort of just what you were saying, that he represents the vast majority of society that just wants to kind of be complicit and that maybe that's what's frustrating, but there's still a part of me that wishes that he would get killed off or something. I think it very much is the the point of the the narrative, but it comes up against the the thriller mechanics thing where he feels like the dumb character who doesn't do things when they could or should that are then convenient for the you know, the beats of the thriller plot. And for me, that's part of the, that's, that's part of the frustration, but it's, it it is really interesting because I think it's central to the point, but then the, the, 
thriller form of the cat and mouse, is he or isn't he, and can we convince, and all this kind of stuff. There's a level where that becomes really frustrating, particularly around him. That's a lot of why I don't know how I feel about this film, because I actually really like the way everything plays out between the doctor and Sigourney Weaver's character. He, The husband just feels like such a distraction. And it, I think some of it is also really frustrating and kind of insulting, because for so much of the film, he seems to be trying to side with the doctor and trying to prove to his wife, look, you don't know what you're talking about. The doctor is actually innocent. When the only reason it's like extra insulting, because he's the reason that she was arrested and tortured in the first place. It's like, take some responsibility, man. Though at the end, I do like that. He thinks that everything is fine. He is so easily duped. And that Sigourney Weaver has to remind him of what he had actually said. You know, this whole idea of people having alibis in place and that Kingsley was smart enough that he had an alibi in place and that the husband just bought it hook, line and sinker, calling up this school in Barcelona, hearing that this doctor character was at this school at that particular time. And then Weaver's just so disappointed in him. Like you said this yourself, that they will have these alibis set up. (laughs) I just love, I love this period of Sigourney Weaver's career where she plays this damaged woman. She's almost the same type of damaged woman in Copycat, which is a movie I absolutely love, even though it's super cheeseball. I love Copycat. (laughs) And she, she plays damage and then she plays this like ice queen like literally an ice queen in in one movie but also with in like the ice storm just this whole just so dismissive of everyone that that line that she gives to um kevin klein of like i have a husband i don't particularly feel the need for another she's great in these really icy damaged roles and she's just so great when she just makes her husband or he should wither after she gives him that line. And then he's powerless when he then hears Ben Kingsley's confession. You know, it's just like, now he's the angry one. It's like, yeah, you should be angry. Plus you should be even more angry because you were duped. You're, you're an idiot. It's making me mad. Just thinking about it. (laughs) I haven't ever seen this performed as theater, but it is something that I think about a lot. And not just because this is, I think as adaptation, obviously, Polanski has done a lot that makes this highly cinematic. And it isn't just showing the car go off the cliff or, or you know, some of the opening up. It's the way that the camera moves around that house at times it is highly, highly cinematic. So this is not the, the kind of theater versus film argument um, that usually comes up. But there's one thing that I do wonder about with this plot and as a, a thriller plot about how its origins as theater. There's something about theater when we're confronted with a, with, with a claustrophobic situation like this that feels more present and dangerous to us and where the conventions of a character being kind of impotent uh, like this can still be troublesome in the way that they are in cinema, but, but where I think rhetorically the point of it might come across better, uh, you know, that, that the husband might be a more fascinating figure, if not exactly a character on stage because of the, the particular kind of claustrophobia that we enjoy of being all in the same room. 
and not cutting from character to character and not having that sense that the camera gives of the character's psychologies and points of view. You know, stage can be, you know, very wonderfully cold in, in, in that particular way in that the psychology of the characters takes dialogue and uh and staging uh it, it requires dialogue and staging to like really bring that stuff forward in a big way and so a character like this could be allowed uh for instance on stage to recede just a little bit and and make it much more about these two other characters uh that within within this film are more more compelling and make a lot more sense I do notice that there are scenes like when the husband and wife are outside talking and you've got Ben Kingsley basically pacing back and forth and you see him in a window and he's kind of trapped there. Like he's just, it's almost like a little screensaver, a little Ben Kingsley walking back and forth <laughs> on your screen. I would love to have that screensaver better than flying toasters. Um, or the way that they keep her outside when he is talking with Ben Kingsley and the husband and, and kind of, uh, preparing Ben Kingsley's case. You know, he's, he's playing the lawyer. And I think that's also, he has to be this devil's advocate, like literally a devil's advocate in this movie that he is already stepping into this defense lawyer's role you know he's going to be the prosecutor for the government but here he's actually a defense attorney at this point and that we have her outside and he has to keep going to the door and like can he go to the bathroom can i untie the cuffs all these kind of things very nice the way that they stage that and just one quick thing when i read that they had a performance of this directed by Mike Nichols with Glenn Close in this role and Richard Dreyfus as the husband and Gene Hackman as the doctor. Oh my God. Can you imagine watching that? Yes. Imagine if that had been made into a film, I feel like it wouldn't get the same type of criticism that this film gets just because Polanski directed it. Not to be a devil's advocate <laughs> as, as you say, but I also have to wonder how different this would be if you made the husband more of a stronger central character and you maybe made it clear. There's that moment when he talks, when they're talking to each other and he says to her, yes, but remember when you saw this person and you thought they were your rapist or they were your torturer and like he he gives her a couple of quick examples of times in the past when she was under the grip of PTSD and was wrong and was just being paranoid. Because we don't actually see any of that in the film, it's hard It's hard to really believe him when he says things like that, or it's hard to be affected by it. I'm wondering how different this would be if you did see some of that unstable behavior. I mean, all we really see here is when an unknown car comes up to the house, she turns off all the lights and gets a gun. But that's pretty quickly explained because they talk about those knocks on the door in the middle of the night, which are definitely based on real events. And because we also find out that there are death threats against him because he's agreed to work on this tribunal. So it's like her over-the-top behavior in the film is usually pretty quickly explained. So it's just, I, maybe this is just me, but every time I watch this, it just feels so obvious that, like, she's right. And 
maybe because it's Sigourney Weaver, and I'm sure this would have been the same way with Glenn Close, they have such strong presences that it's hard to see them as being broken or crazy or like, it just seemed like, yes, I'm right. I'm telling the truth. And I'm so determined that this is true that I don't care whether you, the husband, believe me or not. One thing that we should also point out when it comes to this and when it comes to being complicit in things is that um, the United States government actually played a big hand in creating this atmosphere where people were tortured and raped because uh, we happened to, you know, support this whole coup of uh, socialist president in 1973, September 11th, 1973, where we helped overthrow President Allende and helped install uh, Augusto Pinochet. And he was the one who helped cause all these uh, terrific rapes and tortures that were going to happen. So, yeah, it's one of those things that unless you're familiar with, um, you know, your South American history, you might not know that uh, we helped back some of these uh, wonderful pro-torture and uh, pro-rape uh, uh, leaders down there. That plays into one of the stranger aspects of the film. But, it, you know, for, for me, in an interesting good way, which is that they have American accents they do not, you know, even though the names are, are Spanish, the way that things look and the, the casting of these actors uh, positions them as uh, very iconographically American. And, you know, Ben Kingsley is deliberately putting on an American accent uh, for, for this role. So I think one of the things that's very, fairly interesting here is bringing this story to a kind of American environment. And I don't, I don't think that that's just the convenience of Hollywood casting and money. Or if it is, it ends up being uh, fairly meaningful to me in an interesting way. It's kind of putting this this story in a position of that abstraction of what if this is happening to you, uh, the art house audience of, of the time when it came out. Yeah, I totally agree. I, and I think that's super intentional that, you know, I'm sure if it came out now, well, couldn't come out now be probably for a lot of reasons but if a different if a different director may try to make this film now with the same cast people would say oh you know cultural appropriation blah 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 but i think the whole point of not specifically naming the location and having those actors with those accents is definitely that feeling that this could be any time or place and i do think you could take that material and set it during the years after a genocide in any number of countries. And you certainly could set it in, in any sort of Soviet country. Well, and I'm curious what it's going to be like either in a year or five years, what kind of healing this country is going to have to do. We haven't had the, you know, knocks on the door in the middle of the night, but we have had people in cages, children in cages. So there's going to be a lot of things to answer for, and there's going to be some sort of reckoning kind of like this. We're going to have to figure out how do we go on surviving as a very divided place and can people reintegrate? Well, that's cheerful. I think you're right. <laughs> but yeah, that is uh that's a <laughs> cheerful kind of thought. So I know I keep coming back to this, but I'm just I'm just curious. I'm uneasy about a certain amount of thriller mechanics in in a lot of different movies. I mean, it's not that I'm against thrillers. A lot of the way that the, 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 the sort of the way that plot gets manipulated uh to to make in in this particular case, the thriller mechanics 
are mechanics of a genre that is fun, you know, at, at each reveal, at each turn. And actually, this movie's not very fun, but there's there is the like one of one of the things that that. Uh, that I gotta say on this on this viewing really really bugged me. Uh, I know I've said it before, but I'm trying to be just a little bit more specific because I'm wondering if you guys had the same feelings at all. The, that these turns and the trapdoors and the cat and mouse kind of things sat uneasily with me because the material was kind of too grim for that, too grim and too specific, even within this highly abstracted, uh, you know, fable universe that's being set up so that it could be anywhere. Part of what makes so many of even those like 90s erotic thrillers, part of what makes them so much fun is in some ways they feel inherently ridiculous. Even if it's a story about a man stalking a woman, they're still usually they have positive endings where either the woman kills the man with somebody's help or in some way there you you get the sense that justice has been served but here it feels really real especially when she goes into such detail about the torture it's a lot i am i feel sort of weird saying this but it's like at this point i've seen so many exploitation films and so many sort of the Holocaust documentaries that I'm pretty unfazed by things. And I definitely am not really phased by this movie in a way that I think a lot of people probably are. But just in terms of combining that sort of dialogue and those themes, so exactly to your point, with this sort of thriller aspects that is what i think is a lot you aimed high but maybe you aimed a little bit wrong yeah it's not paul verhoven i think he could do a really amazing version of this play actually i i I agree i mean i i love i love verhoven uh a very different sort of uh very very different sort of character from from polanski but perhaps in a way he'd be more appropriate to the task because of the kind of theatrical outrageousness um, that Polanski kind of doesn't bring to it. No, and I, I think maybe that's part of the problem is that Polanski is always so measured and controlled. Like you get the sense I I've heard crazy stories about how like on the Ghostwriter the clothes in the closet and like the tables in the background had to be a specific number of centimeters away from each other. And so like literally measured with Verhoeven also Verhoeven is another and and there, I don't think there are a lot of kind of major art house directors that deal with themes of rape very often, But Verhoeven is somebody who does a lot. And Verhoeven is also someone who has a lot of female protagonists. And I think he has some of the best films on the subject and certainly deals with it in a way that always feels really appropriate to me. Those sort of excesses, not only visual excesses, but excesses of emotion that he so often uses in his films... I think work really well with those sorts of extreme and often violent experiences that people have. But Polanski is never excessive. Everything is always really like laced up. 
back to trauma and how Polanski uh, positions, you know, female protagonists in in several of his films, and also, uh, you know, the, uh, at least um, uh, principal female characters in some of the others. It's re- it's really really interesting thinking about um, uh, repulsion, uh, for instance, in relationship to a film like this. That this that re- repulsion is driven by a fear of rape, and that this this is something that I think Polanski in both repulsion and then kind of the its twi- its other twin, uh, you know, the tenant, where he actually puts himself into the film and is almost. You know, in in the way that you could look at the tenant as as like a um, as, as an unofficial sequel to uh, to Repulsion, he's putting himself into the Catherine, like literally into this Catherine Deneuve role, becoming becoming the, the, the you know that 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 character. And I find I find that to be something really really interesting about Polanski, how he thinks through this, and how he also doesn't do easy victimology with with these characters. Which I'm always so grateful for and is definitely such a big contradiction to his personal life. But I think what's so frustrating to me to see films about people either experiencing or surviving rape and sexual assault is there's always this kind of, like, I don't want to say victim worship, but characters are made into these really kind of pitiful victims in a lot of ways. And Polanski almost never does that. Or he at least gives, I mean, Rosemary's baby might be an exception. Tess might be an exception, but he at least gives those characters interesting decisions that they have to make throughout the film. And it's never just reduced down to this simple equation. It's really and I hate this word, it's my least favorite word, but it's problematic to say that a convicted rapist makes some of the most interesting films about rape, but I think it's true. And and now I'm going to hell. You're such a closet fascist, Sam. I Yes, I am. I, and in case, I, I hate that I feel like I have to say this, but in case anyone who's still listening at this point, if it makes you feel better, I myself am a rape survivor, so I'm not saying this like... I've never experienced anything bad and I'm just talking out my ass like that. If if that makes it a little go down a little easier. There's an interesting issue with, you know, if if we're going to talk about the, the, you know, the problematic dudes, I do think that there's an interesting issue with Polanski. And I'll say this, you know, uh, on my own going to hell, you know, personally, but like, as a, as a, for instance, and I, I think we're maybe talking about a different, a somewhat different kind of monster, but like I grew up loving Bill Cosby's comedy and I can't listen to it anymore. It's, it's like, and it's not even that it was about anything. It's just ruined for me knowing the kind of monstrous person that he is. Whereas Polanski's work, I can at once believe that the man should be in jail and also see that he, you know, whether it's autobiographical or whatever, that there is a perspective on this, you know, dark subject matter that is all uh, that is that is like, you know, worthy, worthy of thought and attention. Okay, I'm really glad you said that because I feel the same way. And it's very difficult for me to sort of explain obviously troubled people with complicated and sometimes awful lives 
sometimes, a lot of the time, wind up being the people who make what I consider to be great art. You know, everyone from Picasso, everybody knows Pablo Picasso is an asshole, to people like Polanski, it's not surprising to find out that the people who make this really type of dark art are awful, or at least very complicated. But with somebody like Bill Cosby, whose comedy and his television is all super kind of happy and positive and all about like, you know, the Cosby show being about this like perfect family. And you find out that the opposite is true. I think it feels like more of a personal betrayal. Well, yeah. And it's not like I was watching a lot of Roman Polanski films when I was in my, you know, (laughs) nine, 10, 11, 12 years old. I wasn't seeing a lot of Polanski, but I was definitely listening to, you know, why is there air and all of these other Cosby albums. And so, yeah, that, that betrayal now stings a lot more than Polanski. I can't remember when he was accused of rape, but it's basically been almost the entire time that I was alive, you know, growing up in the seventies, it was cool. Yeah. Roman Polanski did this thing and it's basically been his entire, my entire life has been under the shadow of him having this thing as opposed to like right now, Cosby. Oh yeah. This guy who you really really liked and who made you laugh and yeah was this Heathcliff Huxtable yeah he's a piece of garbage and you know it's, it's a terrible terrible person but I do have to say the tagline for the tenant really a poor choice nobody does it to you like Roman Polanski like <laughs> that that's just one of those things where you're like can someone change that like just go back up to the poster and just change it and pretend that that was never there that's amazing. I think I blocked that because I, 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 you know, I, I've seen the tenant fifty times and I've never, I've never noticed that tagline. Or maybe if I'm I sorry, <laughs> I'm sorry to ruin it for you. <laughs> All right, let's end on that high note and say we're going to take another break and play a preview for next week's show. That's right, Polish Month continues next week with a look at third part of the night, where I'll be joined again by Sam Deegan. But before we wrap, I want to thank both Sam and Spencer for coming on the show. So, Spencer, what's going on with you, sir? Gearing up to shoot a movie, maybe, if uh, this virus situation, if, if by summer, you know, flu season is genuinely over, I might I might be shooting. That's what I'm hoping. We're, we're on schedule still. Uh, if, uh, yeah, coronavirus willing in, in August. Like, so that's, that's, that's my big thing, trying to work up to make a, a feature. So you're saying your schedule's pretty open for now? Yeah. <laughs> Well, I, I, I still I still um, am uh, my day job uh, with with North 
Western, I, I will be, uh, you know, advising students remotely, uh, you know, until until June. I'm really, really hoping that uh, that I'll be allowed out of my apartment uh, sooner rather than later, so I can, you know, get to the business of uh, making this movie. You will be back in. Well, we'll probably talk again in just a few weeks here when we talk about our glass sanatorium. I'm really looking forward to having you back on. Yeah, I'm excited about it. Uh, I, I I confess I haven't watched it yet, but I'm really looking forward to it. It looks very exciting. And Sam, how is the busiest woman in Philadelphia these days? Still very busy, but I haven't. I've been under quarantine for two weeks now, and my day job. I'm lucky enough to be working from home, but. They've been sending us emails lately that we should expect to not return to work until like June. So that's alarming, but it means I can watch a lot of movies, I guess. <laughs> I am working on a book on The Tenant, which hopefully will be done later this year. It got sort of pushed back because I have another book that has a deadline before that. By the time this episode comes out, I believe we should have a new episode of my podcast, Daughters of Darkness, out. And speaking of Polish filmmakers, that episode is on Valerian Borowczyk. And I've been just been doing lots of commentaries here at home, mostly for Kino, trying not to have my life turn into the tenant <laughs> we'll see how that goes and in hour 60 sam turned into a hummingbird yeah if i find any teeth in my in the walls of my house well, I'll, I'll keep you posted <laughs> well thank you again guys for coming on the show thanks everybody for listening please head on over to our website projectionboothpodcast.com where you can find out more about today's episode you also find a link over to patreon where you can make a donation to the show every donation we get helps the projection booth take over the world.
this show and want more people to know about it head on over to itunes leave a comment and rate it five stars make sure you like and share us on facebook and don't forget to follow us on twitter just search for christopher media thank you in advance for supporting christopher media by clicking on the paypal button and by clicking through to all the sponsors who support christophermedia.net most importantly we would like to take the time to extend an extra special thanks to you christopher media could not exist without your support thank you for visiting christophermedia.net and thank you for listening Christopher Media. Let's make some noise.